0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Thanks for joining me again for another edition of the Out of the Question podcast, and I am so excited to introduce you. If you don't already know my guest today, Um, I have heard about him on a number of occasions from people who I respect. And I went ahead and I purchased um, his book, which sounds strange, but after 30 plus years of being a Christian, it really changed my orientation. Uh, The name of the book is The Book That Made Your World, with a subtitle, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of obvious, but who wrote it? Well, Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi is not native to America, and he is not even native to the Christian faith, and yet, by a work of the Holy Spirit, we have... uh, A lot of great information, resources, and vision. So, Dr. Mangalwadi, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me, Andrea.
1: So, the book that made your world, you mean really and truly after coming from a different faith base that you investigated the Bible and you came to this conclusion that we wouldn't really have Western civilization without the Bible why not explain your journey for our listeners so they understand where you're coming from, where you are, and where you're heading?
0: Thank you. In 1980, there was a hailstorm in central India where my wife and I were serving the poor, and I began organizing relief for the victims uh, in about 100 villages where wheat crop had been flattened and Thatched roofs with handmade um, uh, tiles had broken uh, because of the hailstorm. And the end of it was that the district magistrate told me that I was not allowed to serve these victims. Um, We agreed that we will not serve but pray for them. And he sent me a formal notice that your prayer meeting is will create law and order problems. Uh, Therefore it is banned. You're not allowed to pray publicly. And that forced the question, whether uh, we are required to obey the magistrates or is civil disobedience uh, permissible in a nation that gives me the freedom the constitutional right to assemble and pray. This was not a sectarian prayer meeting. It was being held in Gandhi ashram, uh, which is sort of nominally Hindu, uh, uh, for ev- people of all faiths to come together and pray for the relief of the victims. So I was thrown in jail as someone who is creating trouble uh, and It was only later I realized that I was indeed creating trouble for (laughs) greedy politicians and uh, uh, religious leaders who did not care for their neighbors, but who wanted to keep the Hindus uh, suppressed and oppressed within their system. They were afraid that there will be mass conversions uh, as a result of what I was doing. So I was thrown in jail And that's where I began. In fact, the superintendent of police had taken me to his home and spent one, one and a half hours telling me that he respected me as a writer, as a social worker I was doing in his district, which no one else had done before. But he said, you cancel that prayer meeting. Otherwise I will personally kill you. I don't need to arrest you. I don't need to put you before a magistrate. I will take you from your home into the jungle shoot you, throw your body there. Hyenas will eat you up. Are you going to cancel that prayer meeting? I said, well, uh, you have to let me go and consult my wife if she's (laughs) okay being a widow. Um, So he let me go. He thought that, assumed that my wife loves me enough that she wouldn't want to be a widow. Uh, Anyway, we had thought and prayed and talked about it. And we decided that if we Given to this unjust, oppressive, uh, formal order of the district magistrate, we are not good shepherds who we are not willing to lay down our lives for the poor. So we must do what we have to do. They can do what they want to do. And that's why I was thrown in jail. But the problem in prison was that I had to come to terms with how do you build a society where a the highest police officer in the district who has taken an oath to uphold the democratic constitution of India uh, is threatening that he has no respect for that constitution. He will personally shoot me and kill me. Uh, so how do you create a society where justice, not injustice rules? So and let me stop you what- for a
1: second. Um, did they ever explain that in the absence of the charity that you and your wife were going to give and organize, how they were going to deal with the problems? Or did they just say problems happen and people have to get over it?
0: Uh, No, until that point, of course, none of the officials and politicians had any authority to uh, promise any relief, because this was just Hundred villages in uh, the largest state of India, so it was up to the chief minister, who was far away from the scene of the calamity. But the calamity was geographically very limited, and it wasn't in the public interest of the government to do anything about it. So no one had uttered the word relief when we got going, uh, because I had personally experienced the um the tragedy so uh, but of course everyone knew that the issue was not uh, th- that uh, they didn't want private relief, but that they were really afraid that uh, I was becoming an important religious factor uh, for conversions as well as a political factor that, Uh, voters were turning away from established politicians and they were beginning to look to us for their lives because we were also running schools and other things, uh, a lot of other things at the grassroots. So uh, that investigation that how do you societies which have relatively just uh, corruption-free freedom of individuals to pray, to seek God for relief, to serve one another, love one another. How do you build that society? That's what led me to uh, this um, uh, writing of this book that began the research. So actually, when I was in jail, I began writing uh, what became a book called Truth and Transformation, a manifesto for ailing nations. That book is published in, by YWAM in Seattle. It had had other editions in England and in India, <clears throat> but it's available in many countries. It's studied in many places. So that book, Truth and Transformation, uh, A Manifesto for Ailing Nations, uh, that began this movement, which is now leading to a third education revolution, how to change the future of the world.
1: And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the book and about other research I've done regarding your work. You correctly identify the fact that everything good in most in the civilized world can go back to a biblical principle, a biblical law. And because, especially in Western countries, this has not been taught, because in the last 60 years, the Bible has been um, not welcome in any uh, educational forum other than Christian schools or homeschools that people think that justice, people think that freedom just pop out of nowhere. And, and your book, and I hope you'll share a little bit about how you came to the realization that without it, you don't have a godly, or even a livable situation. Uh,
0: That's correct. Uh, Right now, every single day, we get reports of frontline evangelists and believers in villages being persecuted by Hindus. About 75 to 80% of Indians are classified as backward castes, the scheduled castes, scheduled tribes, OBC, other backward castes, so these are 75% or 80% of India is victims of Hinduism because Hindu mythology taught that God created human beings different. The highest caste, Brahmins, the priest he created with his mouth, the lowest caste, the untouchables, uh, despicable, uh, that he created from his feet, etc., but it within the high caste of Brahmins you see inequality, that some are st- strong, some are weak, some are rich, some are poor, uh, etc. So how did how did human beings become so unequal? And H- Hinduism and Buddhism explained inequality: uh, one on the basis of God created us unequal; second, on the basis of Karma and reincarnation—that you reincarnate as a female if your karma in previous lives were poor, bad, uh, etc. You reincarnate as sick uh, if your actions, karma, were poor. So uh, Hinduism was and Buddhism was built on the system of inequality, which is self-evident. Everyone can see equality. Uh, but uh, so was Europe very unequal. Most of the Christians in Europe at the time of Martin Luther five hundred years ago, they were serfs. They were bonded laborers in a, under the manor house, a local lord or king, aristocracy. So uh, Europe was a very deeply divided into class system, and uh, but it was. In the first awakening in America, that George Whitfield began to teach that all men are created equal. The specific issue in America was that he, as a white preacher, was the first man who began to preach to the blacks. Other white people got upset at him, that what are you doing? Do you want us to sit on the same pews in the church as our black slaves? and drink uh, the wine of the Holy Communion from the same cup as slaves. So, uh, Whitfield could have backed down because uh, he was itinerant preacher. He needed money for his ministry. Uh, 13 times he crossed the Atlantic. The blacks had no money to give him. Whites had the money to give him and they were upset at his Uh, uh, this upheaval, social upheaval that his preaching was creating. So, uh, but he didn't back down. Uh, He, from 1740, uh, he began writing series of Bible expositions that all men are made in God's image. All are equally sinful. All can become children of God through repentance and faith, etc., etc. He went on and on defending his ministry and uh, one of his amplifier of his point of views was um, Benjamin Franklin. So uh, he magnified uh, or amplified what uh, um, Whitfield had been teaching and that's what created the intellectual consensus in America that all men are created equal. Now that idea is very powerful idea It had begun with Martin Luther, uh, his book in 1520, priesthood, which was called an open letter to Christian nobility of German nations, in which he expounds the meaning of the priesthood and kingship of all believers. He doesn't talk a lot about kingship, which is an idea that develops out of Calvinism much better, but he focused on the priesthood of all believers, but that was revolutionary because it meant uh, priesthood of all believers meant taking the power of the priests, giving it to all the believers. In those days, uh, every if you went to church to a Holy Communion, uh, every believer didn't get the wine. Everyone got the body of Jesus, but the wine was for only for the priests. So in that Holy Communion, which was much more frequent than it is today, uh, the discrimination of class system of Europe was institutionalized. But more than that, it was in education that all the universities, and there were several universities that had existed for 400 years before Luther. uh, These universities were all created by the Roman Catholic Church. They were run by the church. So the institution was uh, education. University was an institution of the church for the church by the church not for everybody Uh, but Luther was saying if everyone is to serve God as his priest everyone needs to know God know God's will therefore everyone must be educated and that that began an educational revolution it had huge implications Uh, a very simple implication was that everyone if everyone has to read God's word then God's word must not be in Latin. It must be in German. It must be in English, in Spanish, in French, etc. So taking the heart languages of the people, making that languages of learning, uh, because you cannot have a government of the people, for the people, by the people, which does not function in the language of the people. This was Wycliffe's point 150 years before Luther, when he was in 1384 edition of his uh, translation of the Bible into medieval English, um, Wycliffe writes that this book is for people of people, but for the government of the people, he didn't use the article, this is this Bible is for government of the people, by the people, for the people, this is a revolution to have the Bible made available in the language of the people because it means that people now have to read their language. They have to read God's word. It is for everyone, not just for priests. Now, that became the foundation for the uh, intellectual, social, economic, uh, political, uh, legal revolution in, in the West, which empowered the West. And this was the revolution that the missionary movement brought to India and Africa, uh, which begins with translating the Bible into the languages of the people. But then you have to teach the people to read their own language and to begin to write it.
1: And one of the things that's amazing is you could go into most bookstores. Um, I would dare say a lot of people have Bibles in their bookshelves. But we've gotten to a point specifically in the U.S. where we don't recognize the foundational aspect of all that we hold dear and we value um, ideas that have been um, secularized. But when these ideas are secularized, like you explained in that situation in India, you had a constitution but you didn't have an underpinning of faith in the government that says that you help the poor, you extend charity, what you do for the least you do unto God, that it makes a huge difference in how people operate and why there's strife as opposed to why there isn't harmony. Uh,
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, Because, uh, say, India had Indian constitution we, we became free in 1947, uh, but uh, Mrs. Roosevelt and others had already through the United Nations, uh, before our constitution was written, constitution was adopted in 1950. But before that, uh, the United Nations has passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that these rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, etc., uh, these are universal human rights. Now, that was a secular deception. Uh, Many countries signed it. Some of the Muslim countries did not sign it, Iran, Saudi Arabia, because they realized that these are not universal human rights. Equality of men and women is not a universal uh, truth. This is a uh, the West, America, imposing its peculiar worldview upon everybody, calling it universal human rights. But India did sign those uh, universal human rights uh, w- because it, it, the problem came from American intellectuals and European intellectuals, some of whom were Roman Catholics, that uh, it, that the idea that all human beings are equal is self-evident idea. Obviously, it was never self-evident, even in America. Nobody saw uh, in 1776 that slaves and slave owners are equal. Nobody saw that men and women are equal. This was a theological idea coming from the Bible. But India signed on to it because it was a respectable phrase that these are universal human rights. But uh, if God did not create us all equal in his own image, if God did not say you shall not kill, then why can't, if the rights come from the government, why can't the state say you can kill your babies? In The mothers can murder their own babies in their own wombs. Uh, So, the right right to life and liberty, etc., these were never universal human rights, but secularism deceived America, secular, and through America, it deceived the world. And that's why the most educated leaders in India, uh, the, the gentleman serving as our prime minister, for 10 years or so, he was banned from entering the USA because he was held responsible. Uh, for the massacre of Muslims in his state where he had been a chief minister. Only after he became the prime minister did President Obama revoke that ban and gave him the diplomatic permission to come into the U.S. So we have political leadership in India which does not believe in in inalienable human rights because unless there is a God who has commanded you shall not kill, Who is there to tell a King David uh, or Queen Jezebel that uh, David should not kill uh, Bathsheba's husband and take the widow as his wife or uh, that Jezebel should not kill vineyard uh, Neba uh, and take take his vineyard for her husband. So you shall not covet your neighbor's property. You shall not kill your neighbor but you will love your neighbor, you will serve your neighbor. These are uniquely biblical ideas.
1: Right, right. So how did a man who um, comes from a Hindu background come to these realizations? What was your journey like? Well, in 1987,
0: uh, my wife and I, we were, uh, and our two daughters, we were in Delhi for uh, some time. And one night, about 10 o'clock, I ran into a German follower of Hare Krishna movement. uh, And we began talking. And just that morning, there had been a little news item uh, in the 13th, 14th page of the local newspaper that an 18-year-old widow had been burnt alive. That's a tradition called sati, where a widow is burnt alive on her husband's funeral pyre. This is 1987, October. And I asked him what he thought of this uh, widow burning. I won't go into the preceding discussion. And I was surprised that here's a German educated young man who was defending widow burning as a glorious Hindu, sacred Hindu tradition. He'd been defending Adolf Hitler. Uh, I had never heard anyone actually defending Adolf Hitler and the uh, Holocaust. But here was a German who was defending. So I realized that he's living in a Hindu community where he has moral support for these ideas that were by and large rejected by the whole world, including in Germany. So... Uh, as uh, in that night, as I began to reflect on that conversation, that how could a group of Hindus in New Delhi, India, defend Hitler and the Holocaust and defend a widow revival of widow burning? I realized that something serious was going on which the press didn't talk about, so we didn't really know. And I began investigating how the British had abolished uh, widow burning. And I uh, flew the next morning, uh, well, uh, actually one day later, to the village where a huge ceremony of 200,000 or 400,000 people had gathered together to make that young widow who had been burned alive into a goddess. And that began uh, uh, that study of, uh, here are uh, something like, let's take a lower number, 200,000 people who have come together to make a woman a goddess, build a temple for her because she has been burned on her widow husband's funeral pyre. So how did the British succeed in abolishing this sacred religious tradition as an abomination? That was obviously conflict of two worldviews. Is this a sacred religious tradition or is it an abomination before God? That led me to a discovery of William Carey, uh, which was quite hard, but he was the first missionary, a Baptist from England who came to uh, India Uh, He's the father pioneer of the modern Western missionary movement, particularly from the English speaking world. Uh, And he, as I studied him, I began to realize that he really is the father of modern India. He begins to deliver India from uh, its medieval past. And as early as uh, 1806, he had begun to oppose widow burning in India and uh, succeeded by uh, 1829 in getting it banned and outlawed, Uh, how did he do that? So it was through our study, and my wife joined me in studying that subject together. We wrote a book published in uh, 1992 in India, which was to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Carey's arrival in India. Uh, So we Um, published that book, which has been published several times in America. Crossway published it as The Legacy of William Carey, a model for uh, cultural transformation. So how do you transform a culture? And that led to actually two more books. So first I studied how the Bible created modern India. But I began to realize that everything good in modern India came from the Bible. So my uh, third book is called India the Grand Experiment uh, which presents the case that it is the gospel that set India free. Mahatma Gandhi has nothing to do with India's freedom. He has something to do with India's independence but independence is not freedom like uh, North Korea is independent but it's not free. Uh, Freedom is a biblical idea, and it came to India with the Bible, and it was not just an idea, but uh, the whole evangelical movement uh, prepared India for including people like Gandhi for India's freedom. So Christianity Today reviewed that book uh, in January uh, 1998. That's when it called me. India's foremost Christian intellectual, because this case had not been made uh, ever since India became free, that it is the Bible that changed India. But that led me uh, to further explore what the Bible had done. And uh, so the book that you are talking about, it is when I turn my attention to uh, Study the West, Uh, of what the Bible did in creating the modern West, and since then I have another book called uh, The Book, uh, This Book Changed Everything, The Bible's Amazing Impact on Our World, and next month we hope to start actually a series of 12 books on what the Bible has done in creating the modern world. This will rewrite the history of not just uh, modern America and Europe, but also what the Bible has done creating modern Africa, China, Korea, uh, India, etc. Uh, but also take on uh, one book or the series will be on the Bible, its critics. Uh, Why do philosophers, ethicists, scientists, archaeologists, historians reject the Bible? And how valid is their criticism of the Bible? So that will be another investigation. So we are now looking for a number of scholars to work together. And uh, instead of me writing all the books, we will have 10 or so teams writing different books. And uh, some of these books might become more than one book. Uh, like just the Bible's impact on Europe could be easily two, three, four books. Uh, And we have a group in Europe that is uh, taking responsibility to coordinate. So yes, uh, 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 60, 70 years of Christian absence from the university world by and large has marginalized the Bible, marginalized the church, but a new reformation has to bring the word of God into the center as the foundation of intellectual life.
1: And we will go into that because that's the second part of our conversation. But I have a personal question for you, and that is a lot of people have studied the Bible from a historical perspective, an anthropological perspective. And as you point out, there are many critics of the Bible who no doubt have read the Bible Um, all the way through, but of course, they have a worldview or certain presuppositions that make it so it can't be true. How did you go from being someone who was researching this to someone who was changed by the words of scripture?
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I had two conversion experiences. My first was a moral conversion um when i was a teenager just about 14 years old i had gotten into habits of stealing and lying and i was more concerned about my habit of lying i would lie when there was nothing to be gained from it just to deceive people fool people have fun with people and but then i will condemn myself that why have i can't i speak the truth and I thought I needed willpower to control my tongue. I will in the morning meditate and decide that today I'm going to control my tongue and not tell uh, a lie. But in the evening, when I look back on the day, I have lied to everybody, my siblings, parents, teachers, especially my friends and enemies. And then I'll feel terrible about myself. uh, That I'm so helpless, so powerless, and I need more willpower. But then a, uh, an evangelist actually explained to me that my problem was not lack of willpower. I was very stubborn. My problem was that I had a disease called sin. And the good news is that there is a savior. So I turned to Jesus and I asked him to deliver me from my sinfulness. And he changed me to the point that not just about lying, I was able to go to the shops from where I had shoplifted and offered to make restitution and pay them. So I began to love Jesus and witness to Jesus as a student. But when I began studying philosophy in undergraduate program in the University of Allahabad, Then I began to realize that the most brilliant philosophers of this world didn't actually believe the Bible. My professors were more learned than my pastors. If my professors and the philosophers that they were teaching didn't believe the Bible, why should I believe my pastors who were less learned? At that time, I didn't know that being learned, doesn't make you wise. It can make you quite foolish. <laughs> uh, but, um, at that time, of course, I thought that if you were super intellectual, you were very wise. So I decided that I cannot honestly believe that the Bible is God's word. And I became a skeptic and, uh, uh, I, it, it was easy to doubt the Bible. The tough question was, what then do you believe? So I decided that I'm going to believe what the best philosophers and scientists believe. So what do they believe? I began reviewing my whole course. By that time I was towards the end of my undergraduate studies in philosophy. As I began reviewing my entire course of Western philosophy, Indian philosophies, I realized that my professors knew It was all there in my notes that I had taken in the class. My professors knew that the philosophers knew that they didn't know the truth and that Western philosophy by the end of Immanuel Kant uh, in the 19th century had already come to the conclusion that the human mind cannot know the truth. Well, then my professors are blind. Leading the blind, <laughs> right? <laughs> the professors and teachers and whole culture will surely fall in a ditch. So, how do we know the truth? I began to think that maybe the Buddha was right. Uh, Gautam Buddha. My father came from the same caste as the Buddha, from the same ethnic group, and uh, he saw us as five blind men trying to make sense of an elephant. And we fight with each other that elephant is like a pillar because I'm holding the leg. And you'll say, no, 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 elephant is like a wall because you're feeling the stomach. And the, the third one says, that, no, you're both fools. I'm holding the stomach. It's like a rope. She's holding the tail, etc. We fight with each other. We shouldn't fight because none of us really knows what an elephant is like. We should learn from each other, begin to synthesize our contradictory information of what the elephant is like uh, because the human mind, human words, human logic will never lead us to a knowledge of truth. So maybe the Buddha was right. But then if there are five blind people, could there be a sixth person who is not blind? The concept of blindness makes sense only if there is someone who is not blind, who is sighted. So Could that be a sixth person? Could he tell me that, look, you're fighting with your sister because you're holding the leg. She's feeling the stomach and she thinks the elephant is like a wall. If you rise up four feet, you will be able to feel that part of the elephant which feels like a wall, but is actually the stomach, etc. So I begin to do what he's telling me and I find that this man is different than the five of us. Now, if he tells me that the uh, the teeth uh, the elephants uh, are ivory and I uh, I don't and I say to the other blind people that you know uh, these sharp uh, what feels like teeth of the elephant is really ivory and they say what's ivory I say I don't know <laughs> uh, I don't know what is red or green or blue. I'm blind. Uh but I, am, am I correct? Uh do I know the truth? Yes. Why? Is it because I'm more intelligent than the other five or is it because I know someone who knows the truth? Can he know the truth? Can he reveal it to me even if I know, will never fully understand it? Uh so yes, we can know truth if There is someone who knows the truth and reveals it to us. And language is revelatory. All language is revelatory. I do not know what you dreamt last night. My logic, my intuition, my experiments cannot know uh, what the dream you had last night. Unless you reveal it to me in words, or God reveals it to me what you dreamt, I cannot know what's in your spirit. That's what Paul is saying in Corinthians 2. That only the spirit of a human being knows what is in in his mind. And uh, he can reveal it to us. The spirit of God knows what is God. And he can reveal it to us. So the concept of revelation. Which the enlightenment had discarded. But which was actually the foundation of modern education. Uh, with the first education revolution uh, beginning in the Carolingian renaissance and the second education revolution beginning with uh, the reformation uh, led by Martin Luther and others uh, it had realized that the revelation if we are to know the truth if education is to be about knowledge of truth and cultivation of character it had to be based on revelation so That was the journey. The the answer to your question is that once I began to realize that theoretically, human minds can know the truth. Human language can communicate truth if there is someone who knows. So is there a God? Has he spoken? These became the important questions and i decided that i will going i will read all the books that claim to be god's revelation and i was in a muslim city allahabad and the name was just changed two three years ago to prayagraj because now it is predominantly hindu city but at that time, it was founded by muslims so i went to all the shops looking for a quran and the quran was not available in my mother tongue india's national language hindi or in Urdu, which most Muslims spoke in our city, uh, because you had to learn Arabic to read the Quran. I went to the Gita Press Gorakhpur, which is like the Bible Society of um, Hindus, asking for the Vedas, the most sacred and ancient Hindu scriptures. And they said, if you want to read uh, the Vedas, you have to uh, find a guru sit at his feet for 14 years and you will learn the Vedas. We don't translate and publish the Vedas. Why not? Well, because they are not written to give you knowledge of truth. They are magical power uh, sounds, mantras that have magical power you have to learn correct pronunciation, enunciation, intonation, and when to put the melted butter ghee into the fire uh, so that you can use the Vedas correctly. So Vedas are not translated except by heretics. uh, And so there is no authorized version of the Vedas uh, published by Hindus. So uh, I said, well, It is nice to uh, have these knowledge of uh, classical languages like Sanskrit and Arabic. But right now, as a uh, who's just completed my teenage years, I'm looking for truth, not for power. So it was my older sister who encouraged me to read the Bible, which I had read because I already loved Jesus and I had rejected. Uh, She said, no, 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 you read the Bible as a child. Uh, Now you think you are a philosopher. So you reread the Bible. And it was as I began rereading the Bible, I loved Genesis. It was answering questions that philosophy and science didn't answer. Exodus was very interesting. Leviticus was very boring. (laughs) But by the time I came to Judges and Ruth, I began to feel that the Bible was a very repulsive book. You know, I, I, particularly when I came to Kings and Chronicles, that here I am reading these long lists of kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord and God killed them. I don't know enough about Indian history. Why should I be reading this Jewish history? Now, it was at that point that as I was ready to close the Bible once and for all that this is... Um, Repulsive, boring, uh, dirty, morally dirty, and um, useless. That something struck me. The Indian history is always praising our ancient kings and heroes. This book was condemning uh, its own heroes in, in, in as moral failures. Well. Um, this is condemning the kings they did wickedness in the sight of the Lord maybe this is a uh, maybe this is a uh, religious book written by priests priests love to condemn the politicians and rulers so I re- began rereading the kings and chronicles and I realized that the book was condemning the priests that God hated his temple he hated their religiosity he killed the he destroyed the temple, sent everybody into slavery. So I said, oh, so this is a subaltern history uh, written by, from the point of view of ordinary people who are exploited both by political and religious leaders. So I began rereading those boring books of Kings and Chronicles for the third time. And I realized that actually uh, the book was more anti-Semitic than anything Hitler could have written. It's saying that the average Jew was an adulterer, idolater, liar, deceiver, etc., etc. God hated the whole nation that He had saved and delivered and destroyed them, sent them into exile, into slavery. Oh, then this book must be the point of view of the prophets because they love to condemn everyone. So here I am, 20 year old, convinced that the Bible is man's word, Uh, looking, uh, just reading for the fourth or fifth time these books of Kings and Chronicles to convince myself that this is actually the work of prophets and nothing to do with God. And then I realized that the books are telling me that the majority of the Jewish prophets were false prophets, and the good ones were the losers. They couldn't save their nation they couldn't save themselves they were beaten up killed thrown into cisterns etc etc um, ezekiel was taken into captivity jeremiah was forced to go to uh, uh, egypt etc so uh, so this is not a point of view of the prophets the books are actually claiming to be god's word god's revelation this is god's interpretation of jewish history okay so why should I, as an Indian, be reading this book, which is about Indian hist- uh, Jewish history? That's what opened my mind to see that the very reason why Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel were chosen was to bless all the nations, to bless India. So has God actually blessed India? This was the underlying question that if this is God's promise that Abraham, you walk with me, you follow me through your descendants, I will bless India. Has God kept that promise? That's what led me to study the, uh, what God had done in delivering India from its horrible middle ages, ancient world into what India has become as the in the, as part of the modern world and you see lots of Indians there in Silicon Valley uh, that how this was all created so uh, the specific event that forced me to study the Bible's impact in India was that widow burning in 1987 uh, which led to my writing of those three books but uh, the underlying that uh, uh, study was this uh, realization that my intellectual conversion had happened at this point of knowing that the modern philosophy, Western and Indian philosophy are actually pessimistic, nihilistic. They know that they don't know the truth and cannot know the truth. And the only way for us to know the truth is if there is someone who knows it and would reveal. So do we have his word? Is his word true? And that's what led me uh, to this study, which
1: is continuing. Well, one of the things that I think is remarkable about your story is that you don't invalidate the idea that conversion is a process, that as a young man, you love Jesus, but you hadn't put together that the Bible is the basis for making decisions in every area of life and thought, which of course, Dr. Rush Dooney through the Calcedon Foundation promoted, and and that was the, the, the focus of what he did. But you're optimistic in how the Bible will be able to retransform a lot of the um, countries and areas of the world that were actually founded on a biblical basis. And that's your third revolution in education. You mentioned that Charlemagne was first and then the Reformation was second. Talk a little bit about this third revolution in education.
0: Thank you. Uh, In January 2019, that's two years ago, uh, a a Pentecostal denomination in Uganda, which has 30,000 churches, invited me to speak to 200 of their top leaders. Uh, Some of them are popularly called bishops, but uh, technically they're overseers. Uh, uh, I spent five days with them studying that baptism of the spirit is spirit of truth spirit of wisdom knowledge understanding um, fear of the lord etc and at the end of those five days these 200 leaders decided that they want every one of their thirty thousand churches to become centers of a world's best education students should enroll in uh, accredited university, but go to the local church to attend classes. And the world's best professors should come to the local church, which could be a mud hut in the, a, a remote jungle or valley uh, in Uganda. So the, sh- the best professors should come online. And acad- academic pastors, who are not learned people, but like homeschooling moms they should oversee that students are actually uh, studying and uh, learning and applying the word of God uh, and the truth to their character. And then students go physically to universities, research labs, and uh, other places physically to learn what cannot be learned online. So Uh, This education revolution, I had first published this proposal in 2009 in that book, Truth and Transformation, Uh, but that is what has grown as a result of uh, that consultation and my travels across the world. Uh, We had a consultation in the summer of 2019 in Phoenix, and then one year ago, Uh, February 2020, exactly a year ago, we met in uh, South Korea, about 40 of us, and out of these consultations, in between there had been many consultations in many parts of the world, uh, came Kingdom Education Fellowship, you know, later, one of the professors in Uganda changed the name to Kingdom Education Revolution because she said that uh, fellowship is not honest description of who we are. We are really calling for an education revolution where we take education back from the devil, give it to the church for the discipling of the nations. So that's what this movement is. It's We have just today, actually, since we began recording this interview, uh, uploaded a, profe- uh, a uh, proposal, business proposal, which is over $10 billion to uh, initiate and lead this revolution. I sent you a draft copy, but uh, since we began talking, our German uh, team has formally uploaded this proposal. So we are launching the revolution in Africa, end of April, uh, to begin to create a p- scholars network who will study what the best material that is available, including from Calcedon Foundation. And uh, then, but take it to, from kindergarten to university level, create a new encyclopedia as alternative to Wikipedia, create new dictionaries, textbooks, books, a whole uh, knowledge ecosystem, a new ecosystem uh, which is consciously built upon God's revelation. So a lot of what the scholars who are associated with you have been doing uh, will uh, be made available globally uh, by uh, first training uh, scholars. So there will be a global scholars network with regional and national uh, branches and these scholars will apply uh, question critique secular uh, uh, curriculum educational curriculum and ideas but create a more positive curriculum which will be in partnership with Christian universities, colleges, schools, homeschool movements, we will take to the whole world. So uh, I believe that the United States of America can be reformed if we can get 100,000 churches becoming centers of hybrid education. We will bring the pro- cost of education down from, say, $40,000 a year to $5,000 a year.
1: Right. You know what's so exciting about this for me, Dr. Magawandi, is that I've, I've been involved with Christian education for almost, well, I guess it's about 40 years now. And I homeschooled my children. I have taught and supported Christian day schools. And there are a number of Christian universities, but it often involves Um, A financial expense to relocate someone. Your idea says, "Let's stop supporting the God-hating institutions. Take those people who are learned men in or women in all sorts of disciplines. Bring them to the local church and educate." and What that will be like is what happened in the first century of Christianity, where instead of going to Roman courts, the church set up their own courts, um, actually taking health care, such as whatever it was, but actually looking at caring for people. And I think when the church realizes how powerful an institution, and I don't mean the walls of a church are that will understand why governments want to shut down churches, why they didn't want us to worship during a pandemic. I think they realize more than many believers just how powerful the word of God becomes in the hands of believing people.
0: That's absolutely correct. And you have summarized our vision very well. So now we need all the help, uh, to, uh, begin to implement it. And I am, um, Uh, Starting my travels on Thursday, uh, this weekend, we will see uh, Dr. Martin Celebrity in uh, Austin, Tennessee, near Austin. And we are going to Pastor George Grant uh, and Phil Kaiser and Gary DeMar, etc. in Nashville and Colorado Springs, Phoenix, looking for a possible base where we will begin to serve existing Uh, homeschooling movement, Christian high schools, Christian colleges, and universities, but grow into a research university. So this is uh, a vision. uh, If it sounds too big, um, well, nothing is too big for the Lord. Our biggest visions are (laughs) small (laughs) before the Lord. But the question is to change the future and to equip the local church to begin to play its role in discipling every nation.
1: So I would like to read, you sent me some materials as a preview of this whole concept, and I'd like to read two paragraphs that were part of it that I think is important to note. And you say, the greatest danger to the third education revolution will come from pastors and elders who might see a church college as their opportunity to brainwash students. A wise pastor, however, will grow by humbling himself and allowing students to question his assumptions. He will study and rethink what his seminary had taught him. Fundamentalism is indoctrination. Theology means using reason to make sense of revelation. Building a questioning and investigating culture within a church college will make Christianity America's most robust worldview. Having lost the truth, the West has little option but to reject the exceptionalism of its unique liberty. It's important to realize that people, as the expression goes, needs to th- need to think outside the box, but always within the context of education within God's book, the Bible, that changed our world.
0: That's correct. Thank you.
1: So if people want to get in touch with you or find out where you're going to be lecturing or any conferences, how would they do that? Uh,
0: Facebook is the best way. Uh, I'm still using it. Someday I will change, but right now I don't have administrative help to change. But uh, I use Facebook a lot to keep in touch with my friends. Um, uh, uh, there are several Facebook pages uh, with my name on it. Some of them are uh, manage, managed by my friends. But the one with a picture which my wife and I, uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, uh, that's the page that I use uh, it's I'm allowed only to have 5,000 friends. So I don't uh, in, accept all the friend requests, but anyone can become a follower. Uh, and that's where I give the details. So every Wednesday, uh, we fast and pray uh, in the mornings, nine o'clock Pacific time, but the people joining us from all over the world and anyone can join us. And then we do take a few minutes after the time of prayer uh, to uh, meet with the new people who are coming. And so that's the best place, the zoom prayer meeting for people to actually communicate with me face to face on uh, zoom, but also just to pray for this education revolution.
1: And do you have a website or a play? I know that you have a number of videos on YouTube. Um, I didn't find it difficult to find lots of material. And um, of course, your books are things that I would highly recommend. But is there an actual website address you'd like to share?
0: Uh, Yes. At the moment, it's revelationmovement.com, revelationmovement.com. But uh, a friend manages it. A new website is coming uh, which will be focused on this education revolution, uh, most likely called the third education revolution.com. But right now, uh, revelationmovement.com is the main website. Um, I, I, I've been, I live with our daughters right now, my wife and I. So we've been homeless. Our home and community was burned down by a mob of Hindus. So I don't really have a office as such. Uh, I travel around with my laptop, that's my international office, (laughs) but soon hopefully that will change and we will have stability to and the support to manage uh, the websites and YouTube. Uh, Just uh, this week, uh, YouTube um, blocked about uh, eight of my lectures on Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, etc., I haven't had the time to deal with that. Um, but so, yeah, th- those are the challenges which require administrative help and setup.
1: Well, maybe as a result of this and other interviews you give, um, you might find some help. There might be people who are very interested in supporting you and have the know-how to do it.
0: Sure. That'll be wonderful. And the simplest thing would be for them to... Uh, Join us on Wednesday morning, 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. Pacific time uh, on Zoom and uh, get on to that mailing
1: list. Yes. One of the things I have to say that makes me smile, um, having read that one book, and I'm now going to probably acquire both of your other books and read it, is the fact that God's sense of humor, you know. a man who does not start off in life as a Christian has done the intellectual pursuit of understanding how influential and vital God's word is, and now um, is going to have a worldwide Christian ministry, sort of makes me realize that those folks in India maybe really did Understand what you were all about, and little did they know that their reactions to you was going to spawn something so magnificent as this. So, I think God's sense of humor is um, to be noted here.
0: Well, thank you. That in India, I was in and out of jails here in America until four or five months ago. I was, I'd been sleeping on the floor uh, of my daughter's homes. We have two daughters here. And we use one's address as our legal address, uh, the other one's home we are living. So I've been sleeping on the floor and until two uh, twin brothers uh, of Indian origin, they gave us some money to buy a, med- a bed. So for the last few months, I have had a bed. Oh but, good. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am with absolutely nothing. I don't have a car. I don't have a home. I don't have an office. Uh, um, P- applying, asking today for $12 billion mm-hmm. t- for a global education revolution. That's almost like Abraham believing that he will inherit the land.
1: Yes. Well, God bless you. Um, I plan to stay in touch. And um, listeners, you're free to always comment on this podcast or any of our previous ones. And like so many who gave me the suggestion to pursue an interview with Dr. Mangalwadi, thank you for that. And feel free to do the same. You can contact me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And God bless you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.